This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. She was 18, and she was the only one to actually speak at the sentencing and to actually directly speak and apologize to the victim's families. What did she say? What was her explanation for all this? I don't think she offered an explanation because how can you really explain anything? Yeah. All she could really do was apologize for her role. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked Presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Author Vivian Ho is a freelance journalist in London, but she was in San Francisco reporting for The Chronicle and The Guardian at one point, and she wrote a book called Those Who Wander, America's Lost Street Kids. It's about the murder of two people in San Francisco by three unhoused people, but the killer's backgrounds and their lives on the street make this story more complicated. We're in San Francisco in 2015. So 23-year-old Audrey Carey was found dead in Golden Gate Park, dead from a gunshot wound. And hiker Steve Carter, who is 67 years old, was found dead on a Marin hiking trail just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And it was just a series of murders that happened really close together. And nobody really knew what was really happening, what was going on. You cover crime, so you, you understand that most crimes that happen, that there's a rhyme or reason to them. They're done by somebody that you knew or they're done like a robbery gone wrong or something like that. And quite quickly, the police were able to connect these murders to three street kids. If you're familiar with the San Francisco area, if you're familiar with California, if you're familiar with any urban area in the United States, really, you're familiar with these kids. They're kids that you see hanging around the streets and they're kids that you would characterize if you were not feeling especially kind as a person, you would see them and you would be like, are you really homeless? You seem to be having too much fun, that kind of thing. But throughout the course of my reporting on this story, on this case, I came to learn a lot about these kids. And you say street kids, but with these three convicted killers, one is 18 and two are in their 20s. And I know later on that you call them kids because of their lack of maturity, particularly because of how they grew up. So these aren't kids, but they seem like it for various different reasons. We'll get into that more in a bit. 
as you know, in San Francisco, this sort of large unhoused population was always a really big part of the culture of San Francisco. That's a Haight-Asbury neighborhood where Audrey Carey, the first victim, was found. A cloud of fear kind of swept over this neighborhood. And this, this entire community ended up kind of getting scapegoated a little bit. So this is San Francisco in 2015. What about drugs in the city? Because some of this story does involve drugs. I mean, it was San Francisco. There are people smoking on the streets, depending what neighborhood you went to. The Tenderloin, for example, it was kind of known as sort of an open air drug market. There were specific places that people would go for specific things. You would go to the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood, where most of this book takes place, if you're looking for other street kids and sort of that hippie street kid community. And this community was mostly a lot of weed. But what was happening a lot more in this community is a lot more harder drugs, a lot of meth, a lot of dope. San Francisco enacted some of the harshest laws against homelessness in the country. It was illegal to sit on the sidewalk. It was illegal to lie down on the sidewalk. Well, public camping was out. I'm assuming that was the ban, right? Yes. Were there enough shelters for the amount of unhoused people who were in San Francisco in 2015? Never, never. There have never been enough shelters, enough beds for the people that needed beds. Okay, so in 2015, if you compare it to a large city like Chicago or New York or LA, high crime, could people feel safe in most areas of San Francisco at night? It definitely was not a high crime sort of place. Depending on what neighborhoods you went to, most places you felt completely safe walking down the streets. They weren't unhoused individuals. They were your neighbors. They weren't strangers. It was not a scary place to be for sure. Now, the first victim that we talk about is Audrey Carey, who's 23 years old. What do we know about Audrey before any of this happens? Did you find out very much about her? Audrey was a very free-spirited young girl. In a way, Audrey Carey was a lot like the kids who would end up killing her. She was the sort of kid who just was trying to find her place in the world at that time. She knew she didn't want to work in a sort of office environment. She didn't want to be caged in by walls. And she wanted to travel. She wanted to see what more was out there, like a lot of young kids out there. And San Francisco was the first stop on her trip, on her first backpacking tour. And unfortunately, that was where she met her end. And Audrey wasn't considered unhoused, is that right? She was someone who was traveling and staying in hostels. She was from Quebec. She was staying in a hostel in San Francisco. She was living out of a backpack and she was just traveling. That was it. That's the thing with this crowd. You know, there are travelers. People travel. People do. But the line between traveling, the line between homelessness, it gets blurry at times. For people who don't know much about hostels, I have only gone to hostels in Europe. I've never been to a U.S. hostel before. Tell me about that, because it's kind of its own community. Many times of young people who are going from city to city and paying for a place to stay that is much less than a hotel, but safer than obviously being out on the street. The hostel community is basically the traveling community. They're people who enjoy traveling, people who just enjoy exploring. And they were just people who just wanted to see more, wanted to see more in life and didn't believe you needed a million dollars to do so. And Audrey was very much part of that set. She had a very bright future ahead of her. She did volunteer work in Quebec. She was studying to be a lawyer at one point before she took time off to travel. And she was just described by her mother as an overall very kind, very bright-eyed, very sweet girl. 
Was she on her own or was she traveling with a group? She was on her own. That tells you a lot about the kind of person that she was. To be a young woman of that age, to be willing to leave your friends, leave your family and explore the world on your own, that's huge. That says a lot about how independent she was, how much she was willing to explore, how much she wanted to see. She did it. She did. Okay, so Audrey is on her own and she's traveling. And what happens the day when she gets killed? Where is she? Where is she going? So there is a music festival in San Francisco that weekend, Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Music Festival. It's playing, it's in Golden Gate Park. And Golden Gate Park is just kind of the place where a lot of people, a lot of transient youth spend the nights. A really wild sort of park, a lot, a lot of nooks and crannies where people can hide for the night. It was the typical sort of beautiful Indian summer in San Francisco. In October, it gets really, really hot. And it was really hot, really beautiful, really balmy. And that day, she ran into this trio, Hayes Lampley, Lila Olligood, and Sean Engold. So these were unhoused youth, right? They were in Haight-Ashbury. Is that the part of San Francisco that she was in at the Golden Gate Park? Was the Haight-Ashbury section? Yes. Haight-Ashbury butts up to kind of the entrance of Golden Gate Park. And then Golden Gate Park extends all the way out towards the ocean. And then um, what kind of happens within the traveling community, she kind of just hooked up with these kids and hung out with them for the rest of the day. The thing with this traveling community, you make friends easily and you lose friends easily. And so she was friends with them for a day and that was it. So let's go through their ages. Audrey Carey is 23 years old. Then in this group of people that she meets are 18-year-old Lila Scott Olligood. Sean Angold is 24 and Lila's boyfriend Hayes Lampley is 23. And he's sort of the ringleader of this whole group. So everyone in this part of the story is in their 20s except for Lila. So they hang out and they're having a good time together. When does it seem like, now that you know the whole story, when does it seem like things change and why do they change in this group of three young people who are unhoused and this young woman who is just traveling from area to area? Let's back up a little bit. I ended up having a lot of long in depth interviews with Hayes Lampley when he was in prison. I spoke to him in depth about what happened, everything that happened about his life. And he told me exactly what he said happened. What I wrote in the book is a combination of his accounts, what the police believe happened, what little Sean was able to tell me before Sean stopped returning my calls. And yeah, according to Hayes, Hayes had started to sour on the street life around this time. It's hard living. And the thing is, you can only travel for so long before you realize that you're not so much traveling as you're really kind of trying to have something to do rather than say that you are unhoused. And so he he wanted out, but he didn't really know how to get out. And that's the thing with a lot of these kids. When we're feeling uncharitable, we look at these kids and we call them homeless by choice. That terrible word, homeless by choice. But whether or not they're homeless by choice, which is also a loaded concept because it's like, what are their choices? Do they stay home and get abused? Do they stay addicted to drugs? Do they have some mental illness? You know, what are their choices exactly? We say by choice, but then the real question is, do they have the choice or the option to not be homeless again? In this very situation, what I found in my investigation and reporting the story was that in the search to not be unhoused anymore, that was what essentially led Hayes Lampley, Lila Oligod, and Sean Engold 
to kill two people. They were looking for essentially a quick way to make some cash and a quick way to escape and get to an almost promised land. What promised land was that? What were they thinking they were going to accomplish with what, the 50 bucks or something that Audrey probably had on her? So Hayes Lampley, his entire life, he had so little. He grew up in a family of addicts. All of them had some kind of relationships to being unhoused at some point in their lives. He was in and out of foster care. He told me that he was abused sexually by his father. His father's family has denied that, of course. He's also told me that he was also physically abused as well. And he also told me he witnessed a lot of violence early on, especially living on the streets. You will witness a lot of violence. You'll witness a lot of awful things, period. But the one thing that always got him through was that he was told that in his family, all the male descendants in his family had a right to a a parcel of land in upstate Oregon. Hmm. And it was not a large area of land. It was only like a few acres. I mean, of course, it's beautiful, lush Oregon forest, as you can imagine. I never got to actually see it, but I drove up in the area where it was. And it was so far up, the radio signal goes out. The creek is babbling on the side. Everything smells like pine and it's just... The roads are all twisty and dirt. So very isolated, where you could be off the grid, essentially. And you can imagine how wonderful that must sound to a kid that had to live on the streets for most of his life. Right. So for him, he wanted to get there. And he kept telling Lila Alligood, he kept telling her, you know, we're going to get there. We're going to escape. We're going to get married. I'm going to take you up there and we're going to live in peace. We're not going to have to worry about anything ever again. Along the way in San Francisco, their friend Sean caught on. By the time I I spoke to Hayes Lampley in prison, Sean Angold had struck a deal with the prosecution to testify against Hayes and Lila. So Hayes was rather sour (laughs) against Sean. So he tells me that he never intended to bring Sean to the land, but that Sean just kind of jumped on, was part of it. So Hayes is telling you through your correspondence, that his intention was not to rob Audrey Carey of money in order to supplement a drug issue that any of these three young people might have had. It's more of to purchase two bus tickets to get up to Oregon so he and Lila can start a new life. Something along those lines. At that time, they still definitely had pretty heavy meth problems. Yeah. What did you think about that? Did you believe it when he said that? Or did that seem like something he was telling you as some sort of fanciful explanation for how things went so wrong with her? What I could believe was that crime within that community could also run so rampant that whatever purpose it was for, it didn't matter. Yeah. What it came down to was that they were going to rob Audrey Carey. He told me they never meant to kill her. That's what he said. So what happened? They're hanging out all day long. Are the three of them using drugs all day? Is meth a player in all of this? Yes, there is meth involved. There was a lot of meth. They were smoking meth, smoking pots. There was meth found in Audrey Carey's system when she died. We got to back up a little bit to maybe a day before. They were just kind of pulling on car doors hmm. and trying to see if they could find one that was unlocked. They found one that happened to be unlocked. And this was clear across the city, by the way. This was the busiest weekend in San Francisco. This is what's so interesting about this. Like, this is historically always the busiest weekend in San Francisco. During this weekend, it's this music festival and also Fleet Week. 
And they were by the piers. They were by Coit Tower hmm. in the north. And they were pulling on car doors when they found one that was unlocked. And in that unlocked car, they found a fully loaded gun. And they took that gun and they just figured they found the jackpot. Because, you know, on the street, you're always looking for protection. And they found the ultimate form of protection. And they could sell it if they needed some extra money. I mean, that would be my thought is just sell the gun. You know, why have to rob somebody? But is Audrey with them when this happens? Or No. Okay, they haven't met her yet. This is the day before. Exactly. So Audrey has no idea they have a gun. Okay. The thing that was so scary about these murders was that when their photos of these kids went up on the TV screens, they looked like all the kids that you see on the streets. They didn't look like they would cause any harm. And so everybody looked at them and they're like, what the hell? Could they also be coming to murder us? When I spoke to Hayes Lambley, I really wanted some kind of remorse from him. <laughs> you know, I really wanted some kind of remembrance from him, especially about this young girl who was around his age. But he re- didn't really remember anything about her. He had no recollection of her at all, really. Wow. He spoke about how she had a big bag of carrots. He spoke about how she had uh, accents. Because she was from Canada. And they figured that she would have a lot of money on her. And so they made a plan that they would rob her. After spending the day with her, or was that the plan to begin with when they met her, according to Hayes? That was the plan to begin with, Okay, that they would rob her eventually. And then night fell. They start bunking down. And according to Sean Angold, this is when Audrey thanked them for being her friends that day. And then that is when Lila Oligood pounced on her and they start trying to tie her up. When she starts fighting back and refusing to be tied up, the gun comes out. And that is the point of contention. Who drew the gun? Hayes says Sean Angle drew the gun. Well, Sean says Hayes drew the gun. But either way, the next day, Audrey Carey's body was found with the gunshot wound to the head. What I find a little confusing about this story, and maybe you don't, and you can give me some clarity, is why not just get the gun out, point it at her, demand the money, and then kick her out? And that's the end of it. Why does it escalate... Why try to even tie her up? There's no need if you have a gun. That just seems confusing. Are we sure that this was not actually an intentional killing? You have to remember that these are, for lack of a better word, kids. Hayes was 23. Sean was 24. But these are, especially when you're growing up on the streets, like your development is stunted. Your maturity is stunted. Things went south really fast. The way Hayes described it to me, Lila was on top of Audrey, straddling her, trying to hold her down. They were fighting, they were thrashing, and somebody was holding a gun to Audrey's head, trying to get her to stop fighting. But Audrey wouldn't stop fighting. In the struggle, the gun went off. What do they do next? She's found in the park. Is she in a tent or where is she? She's found in the bushes. This was always a jarring tidbit for me. If Lila is straddling Audrey, then she would have been really up close to watching somebody essentially get the brain blown up. All of them would have been really close to it. But according to Hayes, they calmly got up. They went to Ocean Beach, which was pretty close to where Audrey's body was found. They walked to Ocean Beach. They cleaned up. And then they walked a little ways farther down to another neighborhood that was nearby. And they waited till next morning and they got frappuccinos for Starbucks. With her money, I'm assuming. How much money did they end up collecting from her? Several hundred dollars. Okay. That was it. And that's what their aim was, was to get this money. Does Hayes then say, okay, we've done what I promised. We've robbed somebody. I have this money. Lila, let's pack up. Let's go get on a bus and head to Oregon. Yeah. 
they said, let's head north. Let's go. And their plan was that they could make it by walking. They could do it. From San Francisco to Oregon? Yeah. Okay. And so they believed it. And so they start heading north. They cross the Golden Gate Bridge. They spend some time in Sausalito and they just keep walking. And, you know, as they're walking, they're realizing we're not going to make it. This is taking a while. And also we got to keep in mind, too, they're on a lot of drugs. They're coming in and off of highs. They're not feeling great. What happens next? They realize they need to get a car. And that's where they they run into Steve Carter. So Steve Carter had only just moved to Marin County. He and his wife, Lakita, had recently built their dream home in Costa Rica, but they moved to Marin County because Lakita was diagnosed with breast cancer and she needed treatment. And so they're in Marin County staying with friends. And Steve, as an avid outdoorsman, decided he wanted to go on a walk with his dog. And so he took his Doberman Coco out for a walk on a hiking trail. And as he's pulling up, there are these three kids. Lila, according to Hayes, picked Steve because Steve had white hair. And she figured he's old and we can take him. And so they said, all right, let's do this. They go down to the trail, to the start of the trail. They hide a bike that they stole. And they wait. They wait for him to come back up the trail. Other people pass them, but they wait for him. And they encounter him, and does he think twice, according to them, or does he pass by, or what happens? The first time he saw them, he kind of looked at them oddly before getting out of his car and taking his dog out. But the hardest thing about this case, you know, I found was that the victims in this case were the sort of people that really would have a lot of compassion for their murderers. Steve was a Tantra instructor. He was very much a kind person. His wife writes about him very eloquently on her blog and just talking about just what a wonderful, kind, loving man he was. He might have looked at them suspiciously once, but he never would have prejudged them. And so he returns up the trail and Hayes is very clear that this time he has the gun and he points it at them and tells them to give him the keys. This is where I really kind of question Hayes' credibility. So Steve Carter was shot multiple times, multiple, multiple times. There were so many shots fired that the dog was shot through the eye and almost didn't survive, but the dog survived. Hayes Lampley claimed that he he never meant to kill the old man, is what his exact words were. But he says that he accidentally tripped and pulled the trigger. Five times or however many times it was hit? It's a semi-automatic with no kind of alterations to it. You would have to pull it over and over and over and over again. Did you challenge him on that when he told you? Or did you just get the information and think about it later on? I did challenge him on that. And he said, that's exactly what what happened. Hmm. That was also another thing that came up in my reporting. I did have to question whether or not his mind had been so skewed from all the drugs and all the abuse and all the psychological damage that he's endured in his life, that maybe he just doesn't perceive things the same way. Or he's a habitual liar, one or the other, right? That as well. 
you refer to these three people, Lila and Sean and Hayes, as kids. They're not kids, right? We've talked about they're 18 and in their 20s, but that they have that mentality. At some point, do you rethink that? I know that the three of them have this background that I'm assuming is full of abuse. That's stuff that we've talked about. But at this point, is it hard to differentiate between sort of the appearance and this delayed maturity that unhoused youth who don't commit crimes on the street have versus this trio of people who clearly have enough maturity to know how to pull off two fairly brutal crimes. I wouldn't describe anything about these crimes as mature. Okay. From the very beginning, they were incredibly slapdash and incredibly off the cuff. Yeah. And that was what struck me so much about this. It's hard because you don't want to write off the responsibility and the gravity of this. They absolutely need to own up to what they did. And they absolutely must. We cannot forget the fact that these kids are basically stunted to some extent. It doesn't diminish what they did. Right. And they absolutely have to take responsibility for that. And they are serving time for that. It doesn't mean that we should feel bad for them or anything like that. But like, at the same time, I think we need to have some understanding about that. And especially as we look at all these other, this population before us, we need to have some understanding about that as well. So let's talk about what happens. Steve is shot and killed. And I'm assuming that this trio takes Steve's keys and then they head north in the car. Is that right? Yeah, they head north in the car. And this is what I meant by the plan was not smooth at all. They were tracked immediately because the car had a tracker on it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, they were followed straight to a Portland soup kitchen and they were essentially arrested outside of Portland soup kitchen. When they were brought in to the county jail, they had to shave their heads because they had lice in their hair. They had drug sores on their body. They just obviously were living hard for a very long time. So they are arrested. Do any of them, the three of them, talk or turn on each other? How do their cases each unfold? And on top of that, how do they connect them to Audrey? Is it the gun is the key? The gun is the key. It was the same gun used in both cases. And so they were able to connect into Audrey and they were able to get Sean Angled to become a witness for the prosecution. Wow. He testified against Lila and Hayes in exchange for a letter sentence. And he absolved himself, I'm assuming, of the actual pulling the trigger murder in Audrey's case. In both cases, honestly, yeah. Okay, so what sentence does Sean get with this plea deal? Sean is sentenced to 15 years to life. Okay. Lila Ali got a sentence to 25 years and Hayes Lampley to 50 years. So do they both go on trial, Lila and Hayes? They go on trial for a little bit, but eventually just they plead out. Okay, so Hayes gets 50 to life. Are they charged with both of these murders? Yeah, but under California law, they changed it that if you were 23 years old and you're charged with a life sentence, then you can be released in 25 years. He could be up for parole. What do you think about that? Knowing his background versus his actions, what do you think about that, being up for parole? I think, let's go through each one. For Sean Engold, I worried about Sean Engold's safety because, you know, as somebody who testifies against their co-defendants, you earn a reputation in prison. I know for a fact that he was scared when I was talking to him for a little bit. Hmm. But when I did talk to him, he did seem like he wanted to change. Lila Aligod, I never got to talk to. 
And she was 18 when all this happened, right? Yes, she was 18. And she was the only one to actually speak at the sentencing and apologize to the victim's families. What did she say? What was her explanation for all this? All she could really do was apologize for her role. Okay. She cried quite a bit. She apologized, which is more than I can really say for Hayes. He apologized through his attorney. He's apologized to me in our interviews, but I never really got the sense that he really meant it. I also got the sense that with Hayes, he's also still in survival mode, if that makes sense. Especially in prison, you would think. I think it's just one of those things that, especially if it's ingrained in you as a young kid, especially if you start living in the streets as a young kid, you don't know how to turn it off. And in those situations, compassion, remorse, that's a weakness. Honestly, it's a privilege to be able to feel remorse. If he had to feel remorse for everything that he's done in his life, it would be a lot. He's done a lot of things. A lot of things that he didn't think were wrong at the time, but it was just part of living on the streets. I'm an internal optimist. I like to believe that there's a chance for everybody. There's a chance for everybody to be redeemed, to realize where where they've gone wrong. But that's going to take a lot for him. And it's going to be very difficult for him. He's going to need a lot of supports and a lot of people around him that I don't think he has. So that's one of the things I was going to ask is at these trials or these different hearings, did these three young people have people from their families come and support them? Or did they have any support other than just public defenders? Not really. No. For Hayes Lampley, especially, his mother couldn't travel. I was in touch with his mother, who really turned her life around. She had a life a lot like Hayes's life. Hmm. She was an addict. She grew up abused. She grew up unhoused quite a bit. She grew up transient quite a bit. Her family traveled around because they had nowhere else to stay. Because of her criminal record, she couldn't travel and she couldn't come see him. She couldn't visit him. And because of that, she still can't visit him in prison, which is probably one of the harder things, I think, because she is one of the people who's always been in his corner. And I think she's somebody that he needs right now. Let's go back. I didn't uh, ask this, but what were the backgrounds of Lila and Sean, their family backgrounds? Did you know much about them? Yeah. Sean Angled, he had a similar background to Hayes Lampley in that he was in foster care and he was abused. He ended up in the streets pretty early on in his life. He didn't go much in detail with me, but he had awful memories of his foster parents trying to drown him and those sort of memories of abuse. Do you know much about Lila? Lila definitely had a more privileged background. Lila, she grew up in Hawaii. She grew up the child of divorce, started acting out as a teenager. I spoke to a classmate of hers that said that she was a bit of a bully and had some behavior issues that were really questionable. That uh, raised a lot of questions about what was happening to her that nobody was, was really kind of seen, if that makes sense. Yeah. She was so young, so young. And by the time that she was 16, she was on the streets. Okay, so back to the trial. What about Audrey's family? Do they come, I'm assuming? Do they come from Canada to see the proceedings? They were unable to come from Canada, but they sent a statement. I'm sure they were heartbroken. It must have just been horrendous for them to see their daughter go off travel and then not come back. Isabel Tremblay, Audrey Carey's mother, has become a huge advocate 
for victims of crimes since this has happened. She still posts on Facebook often about her daughter. You don't recover for something like that. While there needs to be some understanding about why this happens and how this happens, we can't forget what happened. How do you reconcile, though, the idea, and we kind of touched on this before, the idea of someone with such a difficult background like Hayes Lampley? How do you balance that as a journalist? To me, it must be very difficult. When I started reporting this case, I realized early on it wasn't just about murder. I realized it was about an entire population that was being either criminalized or overlooked. And it was this traveling transit street kid population, this population that these convicted murderers came from. I went into this because I wanted to say, you know, not all these kids are going to murder you. Everyone clutching the pearls was freaking out about at first. But I wanted to understand, you know, just why and how did we get to this moment in time? And the scary thing I found was it wasn't hard to understand. It wasn't hard to see the lines of how we got to where we were. And it's a path that hundreds and thousands of kids are currently on. What do you think the systemic problem here is that would have helped in this case? Is it intervention? Is it prevention of abuse? I mean, it just seems like it starts from birth and how you stop this from happening for a population of young people to be forced out onto the street. And, you know, you have this great quote in the book, which is when you're asking them, do you choose to do this? And that's not the question. The question is, can you not choose to do this? Which is they feel like this is the only choice they have. So how do you then have this group on the streets because they feel like have no choice but not react out of total self-preservation, which is sometimes breaking the law. What I found is that every case needs a specific individual approach. And you just can't do that in the systems we have in place. We can't afford to be like, oh, this person needs X, Y, and Z, but this person needs A, B, and C. We just don't have the time or resources to do that. But every kid is different. Every story is different. What works for one kid doesn't work for another kid. And that's the problem. Like We have all these blanket solutions and it just doesn't work for everybody. And when it doesn't work for everybody, we say it doesn't work at all. And then we throw it away and we ignore the ones it does work for. Has this reporting that you've done on this story and writing this book informed how you approach stories in the future? What you're doing right now, how has it changed you as a writer? I've always reported on things, you know, with open eyes. But now I try to do so now. I mean, this is really corny. I try to do so with an open heart as well, (laughs) because it's just we seal ourselves against these kids so instinctively almost. And like, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You see these kids and you just, your hackles go up. You hate them on sight. And we need to ask ourselves, why do we hate them so much? And it's just like, honestly, we we hate them because we failed them. I think there are people, certainly there's a large portion of young unhoused people who don't commit crimes who feel like they need to be there on the streets, who aren't hurting other people. And I think it is easy to read the headlines and concentrate on the ones who are threats, who are the clear and present danger, versus trying to figure out what systemic issue is causing all of this, right? And I don't think that it is to say that what happened in this case 
it's like you said before, very eloquently, they shouldn't be absolved of this. Of course not. They committed crimes, two crimes against two innocent people. But it's not as cut and dry as most crime cases are. Let's talk a little bit about San Francisco's response to all of this, to this type of story. This is a city that is known for being one of the most progressive cities in the country. And yet, because of the very large unhoused population in the city, it makes people uncomfortable. And all of a sudden, you see these progressive people do a turnabout when it comes to talking about unhoused people in the city. San Francisco breaks my heart often. And never more so than when it comes to the issue of unhoused individuals. Like you said, San Francisco has a reputation of being one of the most progressive cities in the country, but it also is one of the cities with the harshest anti-homeless laws. It's illegal to sit on the street. It's illegal to lie down in the streets. It's illegal to pitch a tent in the streets. It's illegal to exist, pretty much, if you're unhoused. If you talk to anybody who's unhoused in San Francisco, it's hard for them. A lot of them were not unhoused for long. San Francisco's rent prices are so astronomical. A lot of people in San Francisco are not that far away from being unhoused themselves. Did you get criticism for this book, I wonder? I did. That must be hard. Yeah, you know, of course, there's always going to be people who said, you know, like, why are you humanizing murderers? But this wasn't just about murderers. This wasn't just about the three kids. This wasn't just about Hayes Lampley, Sean Angold, and Lila Alleygood. This is about the hundreds and thousands of kids who are existing right now and that we either ignore or just disdain. And they've never been given a chance and we need to help them. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Susan Jonasis on The Bloody Benders. Within a community, this family are masquerading as kind of upstanding, if standoffish citizens. And then over a three-year period, they kill 11 people at least within that area, both from that community and passing through. And then obviously they flee. It's a mystery. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.